This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. I'm the king of the world! There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here for today's interview episode with Rebecca Ford. Hi, Katie. Rebecca, you and I did the interviews for this week's episode. And first, we'll hear my conversation with Sam Mendes and Olivia Coleman, the director and writer and then also the star of Empire of Light, a movie we talked about last week as maybe getting targeted by critics for a sentimentality. But I think that we both agree is just this like pretty emotional experience. It's very closely based on Sam Mendes' mother, which he talked about in this interview. Um, And it's got yet another in a string of Olivia Coleman performances where you just cannot take your eyes off of her and her character is so multifaceted kind of going through these periods of um, you know extreme quiet and then mania as someone who's struggling with mental illness um, I keep thinking about this movie a lot um, Rebecca I, I believe you're a fan of it as well yeah I, I think it might be my favorite Olivia Coleman performance of, wow, of the recent collection yeah. I just I just felt um, you know she really captures the sort of highs and lows of of that character's um, struggles with mental illness and for me it, when I saw it I felt like this is coming from somewhere personal so I'm curious Katie um, if Sam was able to talk a little bit more about that yeah I mean it was interesting asking him like what is it like to put yourself out there on the set like that and have people be like so what was your mom like in these really vulnerable moments and he said everyone was really respectful of it um, but that Olivia really you know leaned on him and was able to ask him about those things and the dynamic between the two of them they were sitting in the room together when I talked to them having just been stuck in New York traffic and they really make each other laugh like they didn't know each other before making this movie but it feels like such a natural connection and Olivia said at one point like I've decided I I only want to make one movie a year and I want Sam Mendes to direct it so who (laughs) knows it might be be the first of many Um, so let's hear that conversation with Sam Mendes and Olivia Coleman. Well, I'm here joined by Sam Mendes and Olivia Coleman uh, joining today to speak about Empire of Light, which is just open in U.S. theaters. Uh, Hello to you both. Thank you for uh, braving New York City traffic to talk to me. Hello. Thank you for having us. Hi. Thanks, Katie. Um, So, Sam, you talked about this story and kind of approaching it during pandemic lockdown. And it's interesting to me that this was right after this huge success of 1917. You'd been busy. You'd been traveling all over the place talking this movie. And then the whole world shuts down. And I wonder if that contrast was what made you especially start thinking about loneliness and quietude when the pandemic started and and this story entered your mind. Yeah, uh, I think I had about a year after 1917 where I was, um, I mean, you know, we didn't, none of us knew what was happening. I mean, we didn't know it was going to end. And um, it felt like we were never going to be in a cinema again. And we were never going to be um, in restaurants again. And, you know, so of course, we all felt their absence, I guess. 
and uh, uh, so it was it was a strange and lonely time and and um, a time of reflection which I think everybody had and it led me to reflect on things that I suppose I hadn't thought about properly for years and in a way you mentioned 1917 which was you know really based on my grandfather's experiences it was just another stage closer to the personal for me um, yeah so uh yeah I, I think it, it all came out of that stillness was your mother's story in mind in that way from the very beginning or were you were you thinking kind of more broadly about that period in history and movie theaters and then kind of realized that your mother was was integral to the story you wanted to tell no it came from wanting to tell the story i mean i'm an only child and i grew up alone with my mother who was a single parent and brought me up while struggling with a mental illness and um and so that was always the center of the story for me was trying to find a way um to tell that story and hillary the character olivia plays is based loosely on my mum, and so for that's the sort of internal struggle of the film her struggle with mental illness the other part of the film was an external struggle really which was the political struggles that i lived through for my own political opinions really when i was um in in the early 80s when i was a teenager and the sort of uh racial tensions of those years and the the thatcher years high unemployment and all of that stuff um and both of those things i were stories i wanted to tell and i and i just had to try and find a way to pull them together and the, the cinema was the way that i ended up doing it um that they both both these characters work in the cinema. So it happened in sort of that order, really. Yeah. Olivia, did that early pandemic uh, loneliness kind of hit you too? Did it, was that resonant for you when the script came to you and, um, and Sam presented this story? No, I have a very unpopular... Uh, I loved being in lockdown. <laughs> I, I, I say that, you know, carefully, because I know that so many people had the most awful time, but I, I found it was a gift to... We're lucky. I don't live with any, you know baddies so we just enjoyed <laughs> having time together time with my kids that I wouldn't have got so yeah yeah I, I loved it I could have done it for another two years quite <laughs> <laughs> careful what you wish for you never know what's what's coming next yeah. yeah so Sam has said that he wrote this part with you in mind did he tell you that when he sent you this I think you said that on the yeah. first zoom yeah yeah we so okay. we'd never met before and I suddenly got a message that Sam Mendes wants to do a Zoom with you. I went, oh, okay, <laughs> um, in the ki- in my kitchen, and we met. And he said, "I'm I'm writing something. Think I'm with you in mind." I went, okay, <laughs> great. And then we just chatted. We just um, talked about nonsense and our ailments, <laughs> my sore knees, his sore ankles, and <laughs> we just had a. It was very easy, very comfortable. It was a lovely chat. And um, so I didn't know what I'd said yes to. And then after the after the Zoom, you think, oh, God, I hope it's not a terrible script. (laughs) (laughs) Luckily, when it came through, I was happily um, surprised. I was sort of stuck at the time writing it because I didn't know. I I got halfway and I sort of gave up. And, you know, like most people who try to write, um, my laptop is filled with folders that say things like unfinished football project and unfinished you know whatever project and this was another unfinished project and i i was persuaded by my wife so if you're writing it for olivia you should call her maybe she'll just talking to her because i didn't know her i'd never spoken to her before um we'll um we'll just shake it up a bit and maybe get you going and it did so it was really just seeing her open face and her hearing her enthusiasm for the general idea i didn't really want to tell her the story because i wanted it to be 
fresh when she read it. And um, and that did get me going again. And, and I restarted writing it again. And, and then, I, you know, got to the end. <laughs> Miracle of miracles. I managed to finish it. <laughs> Olivia, when you have a director or someone who you don't know who reaches out and says they want to work with you, do you seek out other actors who've worked with Sam? Do you try to find a vibe or something about someone that says, oh, yeah, you're someone I want to work with? No, I should have done that. <laughs> you should have done your search. Really really. Yeah. You've only yourself Sorry, to blame. <laughs> yes. um, I didn't. No, I really should have done that. Um, yeah. No, I just think I, I, because I'd seen so much of Sam's work, and I liked the chat on the Zoom so much. It seemed so sort of friendly and warm that I didn't think to ask. No. <laughs> yep. Fair enough. <laughs> um, I mean, Sam, aside from the, the history of that time in your family, were there any, like, references either to, to movies or books or any like anything that you look toward as an inspiration for this as, as a visual reference or anything that you, you drew from as putting together what this would look or feel like? Um, n- not really. I, I was very inspired by the place when we found Margate and by the cinema. It, a lot of it was memories of a cinema that I, I'd been to a lot as a child in, on the South Coast which has now long since closed down. So I, there was a lot of that. When I worked, we started working with Roger Deakins, there was a lot of photography that we were inspired by. Um, the photographer called Harry Greer. Um, and photography it, from this period in time or of movie theaters or what about it? Well, it, it's full of influences. I mean, you know, every movie that's on in the cinema was a movie that meant something to me. Um, every song that's played, every, you know, um, every poster on the wall, you know, so it was, it was a time... You know, I think for most people when they're in their late teens, when music and movies mean so much more than than other times in their life, you know, Mm -hmm. it's when you first really feel you discover popular culture. And I just wanted the movie, I wanted the cinema to feel real and not feel like some cute art house cinema, but but to feel like a giant, the the cinemas I remember, big independent cinemas that were playing commercial films and, you know, uh, movies like Being There and The Elephant Man and Raging Bull and all that jazz as well, you know. Um, a great era in movies, much underrated, I think. Yeah. So then approaching Hillary, you've got the script, you've got Sam's obviously really close connection to the character. What do you draw from to to bring her to life? It was very clear in the script, the journey that Hillary has. And and I did have Sam there every step of the way, obviously, as a director. Um, he, could, he wasn't allowed to step off set. <laughs> but um, just holding my hands all the way, and I had him to ask, so... Mm. The, the best research and material ever is to ask Sam, who spent his entire life watching very closely a woman who, you know, had this continuing sort of trajectory of gloriousness and, and going down. So when I could say, what, you know, when someone comes off lithium, what's the, how do they feel? I had Sam to, to tell me. Yeah. Um, and I think mainly just empathy. You know, if you read a script and you can feel how, I think it was quite clear how she might feel. But I think actors have to have empathy. Sam, what was it like bringing yourself on set in that way? Obviously, you put part of yourself in every movie that you make, but being asked questions about your mother while you're at work feels intense in maybe a way that you hadn't done before. Yeah, I found people were really respectful of it, though. They, they were very, they waited for me to say it. They didn't sort of go, so what did your mum do then? Um, <laughs> you know, because I think they were aware that it was a very, there was something very private about it. Also, it wasn't directly, you know, I, I, I stress that the movie, you know, I, I wanted to make something that was going to be exciting on a number of levels and I didn't want it to just be about 
you know, directly autobiographical, you know, uh, uh, and so Hillary doesn't have a child. It's not directly autobiographical. It's not my, it's not actually exactly what my mother lived through, but her condition, Hillary's condition and the way she handles it is, is exactly the same. So, so there were moments when it was really weird and uh, like a sort of, sort of flashback and quite cathartic, you know, when you're recreating, you know, your flat from when you were a kid and, 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 you know, what your, you know, the, the images that you remember from, from sort of multiple breakdowns and, and also um, the sort of psychological carnage that took place in those years. And then there were other times when it felt entirely new and, and um, invented, which a lot of it was. Um, and I suppose I found the ones, the bits that invent, I invented uh, much more uh, joyful <laughs> than the ones that were more like sort of, you know, drama therapy. <laughs> mm. um, that's not, but of course the center of the film, you know, which is in many ways, you know, Hillary's crash um, was, was from my, you know, direct recollection. And so those days were, were strange and, and haunting and, and kind of amazing too, because uh, what Olivia does, I think is amazing. is miraculous um, with, with that part, you know, and, um, and she moved me, uh, you know more than I can say, both while we were doing it and afterwards. And so, yeah, it, it was a, it was an interesting seesaw between the two, I guess. Did it make you want to make more films uh, more closely into your life, or make you say never again? I'm <laughs> moving on. It made me want to not make the next one directly from my own personal experience. <laughs> I think possibly you might find the the other the next one's a long way away from it, but. Um, because I think it's quite lonely, actually. It's quite a lonely experience writing it all on your own and then directing it. And, um, you know, uh, it being during lockdown also, or the tail end of lockdown really kind of accentuated that. We were very isolated, you know, and it's in itself a very isolating place. Margate in the winter, it's cold and there's nobody around. And so it, it, it felt like we were in a bubble and I was, it was quite a lonely experience for me. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, the, the next one, I... I, I I would want to be surrounded by people um, uh, doing something that is not uh, in any way a part of my past life. And this is maybe a question for both of you. What is it about British beach towns that make filmmakers want to go and just have everyone be very contemplative and sad? Like the, the happy British beaches don't send, seem to exist very much in film. And maybe this is a very American question. I don't know what, what Margate feels like, but it feels of a piece with a lot of other uh, films. Yeah, I, I mean, the funny, I, I, no, you're not wrong. I mean, you, you know, listen, you know, Margate had, you know, J.M.W. Turner came and painted his many of his great canvases there. He said it was the the most beautiful skies in Europe. It's the northern sky, the, the north coast of Kent. So it looks up towards uh, the North Sea. And and um, and T. S. Eliot wrote the Wasteland, sitting staring out at the beach in the winter. And he, he himself writes in the Wasteland on Margate Sands. I can connect nothing with nothing. He says. Hmm. So it's clearly somewhere where people have gone. There's a sort of um, there's a there's a bleak beauty and a melancholy to it, which which really does communicate when you're there and when it's full of people in the summer it just feels like another friendly seaside town it doesn't it lacks the sort of mythic um scale that you get when it's the winter and there's these you know it, it feels very empty and desolate but also beautiful which it did when we shot there um yeah. and and you know we felt rather possessive about it after a while and then people arrived it's like what are these people doing go away you know <laughs> so yeah I, I think it's just a, an atmosphere maybe
I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. So, Olivia, when Sam talks about the joyful moments of the movie, I think of the scenes between you and Michael Ward and especially these really beautiful bonding scenes. There's such a variety of things that you do together. And when you're working with any actor, you're creating a bond like that. But the the attention of falling in love with someone on screen, I think, is really specific. So can you just you know talk about what you guys did to create that? Well, Michael is, uh, I defy anyone not slightly fall in love with Michael because he's just so joyful and he loves coming to work. And he loves learning from everyone around him. And he's a really an electric energy. And I, I was much more nervous than him. And he, he was much more mature than me about the <laughs> intimate scenes, which I found incredibly embarrassing uh, initially until <laughs> um, then we had Ita O'Brien, an um, intimacy coordinator, who came and helped me. Um, Michael just went, it's okay, we, you know, we can do this. And... Um, and then it became, she turned it, everything into a sort of dance routine hmm. for, for me particularly, I think, <laughs> and made it so easy. And it was lovely. And it was lovely to be doing this journey with Michael. We trusted each other. And, um, yeah, it was yeah, fine. Very easy, actually. The intimacy coordinating thing is interesting because that's happened more and more in film sets in recent years. And, you know, you've had intimate scenes before. So is the difference having a a choreographer in that way? Is that what makes it feel? Yeah, it's so much better. It's, well, I can imagine there are bad ones which don't help at all. If anything, they probably get in the way. But Ita was brilliant. And I think you... you Yeah. No, I I told you, I was very nervous. I mean, I've always done, you know, done it myself as part of my job of directing, whether it be on stage or on screen, you know, any intimate scenes of, you know, I've ended up being able to control myself and I was nervous and she was fantastic. She made my life so much easier. It's partly a mixture of practical um, clues, but it's it's also just having the, the actors can talk to someone without fear of judgment that's not the director. Um, and mm-hmm. so actually, I don't feel this, this doesn't feel comfortable to me or whatever. And she ha- always has a solution, but she never, ever stepped outside of it. She wanted to know what I wanted, what the shot was, and always worked within those parameters. So actually, it made it incredibly easy. Mm. Um, uh, but she was an actress herself, 
Ita, and I think has that energy and understands how actors work, which I think is very good. And so her energy on set was just another, it was not having another close collaborator who was trying to make the movie with us. It was great. Yeah. And she yeah. was there, you know, in the, sitting in the bath scenes or having a shower scenes. And mm-hmm. um, she said, what do you not want to show? And I said, I don't really want to show anything. <laughs> and so she said, wear, right. And she said, you'll wear this, you'll wear tracksuit bums, you can wear a, um, and she was there all the time to just go, I just knew that um, someone was watching. Someone was watching out, and she'd yeah. say, "You know, do you need to be there? No, go away." And she's <laughs> not that anyone's really interested, but people just—they're they're just looking at the lights. They're doing their job, and they don't. Uh, but she was there to say, "If you don't need to hold the light, don't be there." And they went, "Oh yeah, yeah, of course." And it was just everyone was um, really thoughtful and lovely. But she was, she really, she was everyone's sort of—I um, uh, don't know—enforcer, waver. Sorry, sorry. No, I, I, you can tell I'm not a writer. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, Sam talked about the the kind of breakdown scenes as being the ones that hit really close to home, and I think of those as being kind of intimacy in a different way, like requiring a lot of you, Olivia, as an actor. So, you know, you don't have an intimacy coordinator in those scenes, but what do you do to protect yourself or or prepare for those? Those ones I'm fine with. I don't mind those at all. Hmm. I've got my clothes on. I can do anything. <laughs> 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 I didn't want to let Sam down and I that I found pressure and the nervousness nervousness of that really helpful. Mm-hmm. And I don't find it embarrassing to let rip. Although uh, we did the, the big breakdown scene twice and I'm so pleased we got to do it a second time because I think I, I was better at getting to the right place a second time. And then how does Michael prepare for that? I mean, I know he should speak for himself, but when you're having that scene with a scene partner in Michael who's kind of there, but as a witness to it, what what is does that dynamic between you change for, for that? No, he, he was, you know, I, we had each other's eyes to look at and he was there with me. And, uh, you know, in the moments when you have to reset and you want to keep in that place and he was, he really had my back and kept everything quiet. And that's what you should have in a fellow actor. You should really have each other's back and yeah he, he does that so this is a movie about movies in some ways it's about a movie theater obviously but hillary doesn't see movies as part of it and sam i think it's interesting because there's so many movies have been like this is a love letter to what movies can do and i don't think that's what this movie is but you've got this really transformative moment for her to being there which i'm also curious about so i mean as someone who loves movies and understands the power of it what balance do you keep in that to have it be such a present part of the story, but not being part of Hillary's story and make those work together. Yeah. I mean, I think you put it very well, Katie, that that's, I, I don't think it is about the magic of the movie. I think that that was, a, you know, an unfortunate label that gets sort of stuck on anything that has a movie theater in it. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Now that's not to say it's not significant part of the movie because it is. Um, because for me, you know, movies and for the characters, movies are an escape, but of course, but our central character, she she is terrified of being overwhelmed. So she never goes to the movies. Uh, she's she's a cautious, fearful of of the kind of immersion of going into a dark room and watching a movie. So for her, the climax of the story, I don't want to give anything away, is is that moment where she finally uh, plucks up the courage and the reasons why she plucks up the courage. Um, and and then for me, the dis- decision was well when, when finally she makes that big leap into the dark, literally, what does she go and look at? What does she go and see that would talk to her 
that was also playing in the cinemas in 1981. Yeah. That particular moment. And, you know, and it's something, frankly, that I, I believe in as a filmmaker. I don't want to put a film up there that I thought was not very good. Um, so so it, we were lucky because for me, being there, which is a movie, a masterpiece, but um, in my opinion, but is also a movie about how it's possible to be broken or, or not a full person and still and still have a significance in the world, still still change, mm. people, still mean something. Um, that is something that speak, I could see speaking directly to Hillary in that moment in her story. So it felt like the right one for us, for that, for the character, for... And also I believe that Norman, the projectionist played by Toby Jones, would have loved the movie too, because yeah. you also would see a parallel in that film. Um, someone who's locked himself away for... 30 years in a dark room he would see parallels with a character who's been locked away for 30 years so i it just felt all around like it had a kind of significance but then at the same time you're also aware that it's sort of hubristic isn't it you're, you're like uh, oh i'm gonna put the, one of the great movies ever made at the end of my movie. yeah this happens you yeah. know and just sort of and just sort of confront people with the fact that you know um, you know, you're always risking people going. Well, you know, I'd rather see being there. <laughs> so, but anyway, that, I just thought, well, it's worth a risk, worth taking because it's a movie I love. I thought it made sense within the story, which is the most important thing. Olivia, did you watch being there while making this movie? Yes, uh, I did. I eventually, yes, I watched it the day before that scene. Yeah, mm. she'd, she'd never seen it before. No, um, and uh, and then she had to watch it. But then when we shot it, because we wanted the light playing on her face, and we needed yeah. a more powerful light source. She was sort of watching a sort of weird, uh, what was it, a collage of images because we needed the right amount of light on her face. Oh, and interesting. What were the images? She'd just seen. So she needed to have seen it just recently. Yeah. It wasn't actually in the moment of the camera pushing in on her watching the film. Is that uh, right? Yeah, I was watching a weird uh, mishmash of yeah. uh, images. <laughs> so it was the images from being there or just like? Yes. Other, yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so not quite so strange. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Mm-hmm. But you felt like you needed to see, you needed to have that like with you to, because you know playing against a, a blank screen like that. I mean, I guess people do it in you know big budget movies all the time, but that's such an emotional moment, and you are looking at light. Yeah, so, mean, the, but- Sam is so better than anyone I've ever met. Brilliant at telling you. I, mean, I always thought a director has to be able to speak, you know, eleven different languages to speak to each actor in the way that they need to get in the right place. And Sam just had a shorthand and it could tell me exactly what I needed at the right time. So even though um, he could have totally just said, described what he wanted me to feel and I'd have got it, um, it was really helpful to have watched the film because then I could, you know, I felt like I didn't have to rely on him quite so much for that. Which was, yeah. And it was a great film. At least I watched it. Oh, it's so good. I mean, I love it when you've, you know, haven't seen something and you felt bad about it and then you finally see it. You're like, oh, what a gift I gave myself that I got to see this for the first time. Um, this is a, a bigger question, but I thought of it because what you said about Sam's direction. Is there anything about each other's jobs on this set or in general that you envy, that you kind of wish that Absolutely you got to be the not. other person? No, but I think you should be an actor. <laughs> <laughs> Olivia loved it when I sort of did a bit of her character. If I, if I just, just a flicker of an impersonation, she would roar with like she thought this was hilarious <laughs> um, and uh, uh yeah the more the more the, the better for you i love you get enough of it but you became a woman <laughs> that's um, what she said that, that's that's a very <laughs> i would say that's a little bit on the generous side um, <laughs> i really enjoyed yeah. it but yeah. no i wouldn't like i wouldn't like the responsibility i wouldn't like 
I, well, I know from watching great directors that I wouldn't be able to do what they do. I wouldn't be able to do what Sam does. And I wouldn't like to not have any scenes off. Mm. Mm-hmm. At least, you know, if I'm not in the scene, I get to go and have a little sit down, cup of tea, chat. Sam doesn't ever get to do that. I, and it goes on after we finish yeah, filming. Yeah, You've got to do stop. all of the edit. Yeah, and then, and then all of this. And then mm-hmm. all of this. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you, you don't, you've had a break down another movie. And, you know, you, <laughs> I just keep going. What droning on. Um, you know, and for me, this is the sort of this part here is the way you say goodbye to the movie. You talk about it and mm-hmm. talk about it until you never, ever want to see it again. <laughs> and then you've said, you can say goodbye to it. But um, I, actually, I... I do, and what I envy is the is the feeling of not having responsibility, the full responsibility. I mean, I, I I love the idea of being part of that team, particularly when a cast is as warm and as as brilliant as this one. I would love to have been part of the group that you know that 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 told the story and then be able to step back from it, um, because you know as you get older, you know you, you you get you know you you commit so much to a movie particularly when you've written it as well as directing it you know it it does at a certain point become exhausting and you think is there any way of doing this but a little less intensely <laughs> and mm-hmm. being part of the cast would be would be one way of doing yeah. that yeah i mean olivia you get to walk away from this in a different way than sam is there anything you've taken with you from from this movie onto either other work you've done or just you know what what ways has it lingered with you like a nice coat for example or anything like that <gasps> did you take one of hillary's coats no. she has great no. coats <laughs> i'm so jealous no, no nice costume no ah hillary's table you took hillary's table away no. <laughs> <laughs> you are, you've, table. Got, you've got an honest answer okay that's right no i took away the fact no, no, is there anything you take away from this Miss Cole? yes kitchen table <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I've left you with a legacy. <laughs> I was also going to say, I've taken away, I've, I'm going to, I want to do one film a year now, from now on, and I want Sam to be the director of it. <laughs> oh, well, mm-hmm. Deal. All right. Okay. Yeah. Easy challenge. It's in deal print. Mendes. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, this is a vulnerable movie, I think, and maybe especially for you, Sam, since it's your, you know, your family. What movie? Having a vulnerable movie. Like, I, I feel mean, like it's it's emotional. It's, you know... It draws into really big feelings, and I'm curious about having it out there. If it feels raw in some way, or you feel like it, you want people to be kinder to it. Because I, I feel that way about this movie, being a fan of it and feeling so moved by it. And I wonder how that feels for you guys. Uh, I, you know, you always feel incredibly vulnerable. Every movie you, you make, as a director, I, I don't feel any more. I felt vulnerable, more vulnerable making it. Mm. But now it, you just you you know it is what it is. People will have their opinions. And I think as you, one of the, be- the better things about getting older is that you make more and more films and you've been through versions of this before and you, you, you were aware that movies find their place eventually. People find a way of seeing them. They find their own life. You know, the sort of noise that surrounds them in the immediate um, sort of aftermath of release it is not always what survives of them. You know, you, you they just, so I, I, I think you have to be sort of armed against the sort of, the immediate critiques and the and the and the kind of um, white noise and and just let it let it be really. I also think you know that, that coming from the theatre where you know you really can change things all the time. You know, if you if you get certain critiques in the in the theatre, there's a part of you that thinks, mm. oh god, that's a good. Maybe I'll go and change it. You know, you can't with the movie; it's just there and that's it. So nothing you can do about it, except try and persuade people to come and see it and make up their own minds. And that's, that's what we're doing here. And that's what, you know, um, particularly now, every time you market a film and sell a film, 
you get the feeling that you're not only doing selling your own film, but the whole idea of movies <laughs> in a cinema, <laughs> you know, to everyone all the time, you know. Yeah. It's behind every question is, you know, how do you feel about streaming? And how do you feel about this? And how do you feel? And can these things survive? And it's like, you know, that that's pretty new. You know, the, when I started out, you know, it was a given that the, the movies were going to be on big screens. So, you know, we're here to try and keep it alive and, and let people make up their own minds. Olivia, are movie theaters going to survive? Just going to give you the question right there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> if I say yes, will that mean that they will survive? I don't know, maybe. I hope so, because it's an event I want. I, I My kids have had, not as often mm-hmm. as I did, and that you know, is the same going back in generations. And I really hope they get to enjoy that spectacle you know, for generations to come, because it is special. It's just it's comfortable being able to watch a film in your own, you know, sort of filth uh, in, on your sofa. But there's something really special about sharing it with you, other humans and in the dark and eating popcorn. In, in their filth. In their filth. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, that's never I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> um, <laughs> I really hope, I hope it keeps going because I love the cinema. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this movie, even though it's not a love letter to movies, I think it certainly gives you that that energy to get back to even your may possibly run down local movie theater, um, which I have one. It's not as beautiful as The Empire, but maybe want to go back. Can I do a shout out to the Peckham Plex? Of course. It's a cinema in Peckham and it's amazing and it shows all films, not just the biggies. And it's five pounds a ticket to whoever, whenever. It's fucking brilliant. Good shout out. Like, Sam, any movie theater you want to shout out? <laughs> yeah, I like I, well my two my two low the Everyman in Hampstead, um, and it just you know has has sofas you can sit there with your loved ones and snuggle up yeah, and it you, you can get bread. food the food's great they order in from local restaurants and, and cafes you know uh, you get a little you know someone comes and makes a speech before each screening you know it feels like there's a human element to it it makes you feel like oh yeah this is how cinema can be you know this is how it should mm-hmm. be to give it that feeling of of you know the local and, and and some sort of human contact now that film projection is dead um so yeah the everyman in Hampstead, great cinema so now rebecca let's hear your conversation with todd field the writer and director of tar who was you know until this year kind of this mysterious presence in hollywood he hadn't made a movie in over 15 years and then comes back with it what most people are calling a masterpiece but i understand he's you know not uh, like scary reclusive filmmaker to talk to and is is actually pretty engaging yeah he was really open you know i this film takes so many bold risks from the opening moments when he starts rolling the credits and asking you to sit there for it so i really wanted to know how much freedom he was given and and we talked a little bit how his initial script literally had a note in the beginning that was like this movie is going to be long and I'm going to need to, you know, have the ability to do what I want with it. And and Focus <laughs> gave that to him. And it was it was great to hear about how he himself sort of didn't believe that this would ever happen for him. Yeah, I can imagine that you um, you pitch this movie and you can see someone being like, well, I like this movie, but I don't know if Hollywood would ever make it. And Hollywood has since, you know, his last film, Little Children, only gotten more and more difficult to have these kinds of bold swings come out. Um, but you're right. Focus Features really has gotten behind him on it. Did he uh, reveal any of the many mysteries we all keep talking about around Tar about what's real and what's not? And uh, is she a real person? Maybe another mystery to discuss. You know, I tried, Katie. Um, <laughs> he, he loves the 
fan theories. He think he feels like this is literally the reason you make a film. And and I tried to get him to tell me how Lydia Targ won her EGOT. Um, and he says he does have an answer, but you'll have to listen in to see what he tells me. I love that he loves the fan theories, though, because I feel like filmmakers can easily be like, that is not what I meant at all. You're wrong. <laughs> right. But uh, Tar inspires so much fun speculation. Um, well, let, let's hear his answer. Uh, let's listen to your conversation with Todd Field. I want to just like jump right in and start with Lydia Tarr because everyone is talking about her almost like she's a real person when you look on social media. And I'm curious for you, where did this character first take shape for you? Like what was sort of the beginning of the idea to build into Lydia? Well, I started, uh, she kind of appeared about 10 years ago to me. And, you know, I understand in a fashion why people do think that she's real because she's very real to me um, and has been for a long time. I, you know, I wasn't sure that I would ever be able to sort of share her with anyone um, because everything that I've been adapting for the last however many years has been based on underlying material uh, where the characters have been imagined by others. Um, but here she is, you know. And because she has so many layers to her and her personality, did it start with sort of a, you know, this is a woman in this world of music, or did it start more with sort of who she was as a person and and as a person? Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think, as any of us know, if you have people in your household and and you, you even passively observe people that you're related to or or partnered with or friends or we see many different sides of them, um, and their their work life is only one of them. You know. um, and I was reading over the screenplay and I noticed this opening note that you put in there that I'm going to read a little bit of it just so the listeners can hear. It said, based on the script's page count, it would be reasonable to assume that the total running time for Tar would be well under two hours. However, this will not be a reasonable film. And then you go on to say... All this is to say, if you are mad enough to greenlight this film, be prepared for one whose necessary length represents these practical accommodations. So I'm curious, when you were writing the screenplay, you know, it sounds like you really led with that you needed to have the freedom to make the story you wanted to tell. Was that ever met with any um, resistance? No, strangely, no. And I didn't receive one script note. I can't imagine ever having... Anyone, and as that note says, if you're mad enough to greenlight this film, um, I'm still sort of scratching my head that uh, Peter Kujowski and Kiska Higgs were, were mad enough to greenlight this film, and ultimately Donna Langley and Jimmy Horowitz at Universal, because who on earth would ever greenlight this film? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, from what I understand, Peter sort of gave you the freedom to tell what story you wanted to tell. He did. I ha didn't tell them what I was setting out to do. I didn't tell them who the character was. I didn't tell them if it... I think they probably assumed I was writing a story for a, a man. Um, I didn't tell them anything. And um, I called them about halfway through writing it because I realized that I probably should give them some kind of caution. And I said, look, I, I really don't want anyone to be out on a limb for this um, I can't tell you what I'm doing, but I'm very excited about it. But when I hand it in, there's a 99.9% .9 chance that you're going to hate it and not want to make it. And I just, 
I'm just telling you this so there's no to manage expectations so there's no unhappiness that um, if that is in fact the case I'll be happy to work it off on some other script for you but I have to write this the thing I'm working on I have to write it and Peter said um, well appreciate you know you reaching out but the truth is is we just want to make a film with you we don't care what you write just write your film and and he uh, that wasn't hyperbole he consistently supported the film and stood by that statement but it was a it was a very um it was a very generous thing for him to do and and there was a certain amount of risk obviously involved for him and to have that kind of respect paid to you you really want to meet that you know um mm-hmm. so he set the bar very high and uh, and I tried you know tried to to meet it as best I could and because you'd had other projects throughout the years that you'd been working on that you know didn't come to fruition, I'm curious, did you doubt that this would ever happen, even as you were writing it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I've been directing for the last 16 years, but mm-hmm. I, I do advertising, so I'm used to working a lot. You know, like directing is sort of second nature to me, but writing material and having it be rejected for either budgetary reasons or or other allergies is something I'm fairly used to. So the idea that someone actually would, you know, <laughs> green light a script, especially in 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 this magnificent manner, um, is is shocking. I, like I said, I, I'm still scratching my head. And I know you wrote this script for Kate uh, Blanchett, who stars in it. And I'm curious, did it at all require sort of a chase to get her to agree to it? Or would you have even ever made it if she'd passed? No, I wouldn't have made it if she passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, when, and one thing, you know, I, I tried to be, again, uh, respectful and transparent with the studio. But the one thing that I lied about when I handed it in was um, immediately Kiska Higgs and Peter uh, Kujowski said, um, you must have someone in mind for this role. And I said, no, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm just no idea what, because I was, you know, I was terrified that somebody might make a call or whatever and spook her, you know. Um, uh, so I kind of didn't do anything for about a month, and then Serena Rathbun, um, my my wife, um, kind of kicked me under the table, you know, and said, uh, "You need to quit being so sheepish. You need to call her. You need to find out um, whether you're doing this or not." And I did, and she said yes immediately. Um, now, part of that. That was surprising because I think it's a very dangerous character and I don't think that it wasn't a sure thing. You know, there was all kinds of reasons why she may have said no, but right. but that speaks to who she is as an artist that she said yes. Right. And and you obviously expected she would be able to, to deliver on what is quite a demanding performance, but how would you say she surprised even you once you were actually shooting the film? <sighs> Well, you know, um, like I said, she said yes immediately, and we were going to go straight into prep and then shoot the film. But there was a second lockdown that came up in Berlin at the time. And uh, the film was designed so that I always wanted to have flat November light. That's sort of how I think about Berlin, you know, with no leaves Mm -hmm. on the trees, which meant that we would have to always start in September with the interiors uh, and then work our way outside and, and, and point towards windows and stuff at the appropriate uh, seasonal corridor. Um, and when that lockdown happened, we were going to have to push 12 months. There was no getting around it. And in that 12 months, um, I saw how much work Kate put in uh, while she was making two other films. Um, but there's knowing that 
and there's being in dialogue with a collaborator, and it's quite another thing to be on the floor with someone for the first time. Um, mm-hmm. And that took my breath away. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. And I'm curious for you, do you feel, you know, as you mentioned, you've been working in in film still, but not technically feature filmmaking. And I'm curious if those years away from making a feature like this, do you feel like they were necessary? Do you feel like they somehow allowed you to make this film? Well, they allowed me to survive. Um, They allowed me to raise a child. Um, Mm -hmm. But they also made me a much stronger technical filmmaker. Um, I worked with the the finest film technicians and artists uh, that are on the planet for 15 years, you know, and I shot all over the world. So I think there was a particular kind of muscle that was developed in doing advertising that I didn't have before. Um, So technically it was really exciting. I felt much more fearless about what I was doing. But the one difference uh, is that when you're working in advertising, often you're dealing with cars or you're dealing with, people that are not actors. Um, And the very first day uh, that we shot in Dresden at the Philharmonic, the very first scenes that we did uh, were the scenes up in the rake after the rehearsal with Nina Mm -hmm. Haas and Mm -hmm. and Kate Blanchett and and Noemi Merlon. And and having three actors of that caliber suddenly play a scene, that's when um, your heart just soars and you say, oh, I remember, I remember what this was like. You know, it's been a long time. And that that was like a wall that hit me, like a wave that came over me I didn't really expect, you know. And, and that was a very, very heady place to be for the next several months. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and how much did you think about navigating tone while you were making this? Because, I, you know, I've seen it with an audience a couple times, and sometimes there will be a laughter at parts. You know, some of this dialogue is just so incredible, and it, it, it really elicits different responses from people in the audience. So how how much were you thinking about uh, navigating that? I mean, tone is a funny thing, you know. Um, I think ultimately it's, it's just, it's interpretation. So it really comes from your belly and not your head, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. unless you're doing flat out sight gags or something like that. And that's a very mechanical thing. But yeah, I mean, um, I'm glad to hear that. Um, I've, I've sat in a few audiences and there's been, some titters at different places and, and and I say, ah, oh, okay, good. You know, uh, somebody understood this. Um, but uh, the idea was to um, try not to point it at things. You know, if there's humor, not to really try to point at the humor. If, if the camera is going to do something, unless there's a damn good reason, not point at it. You know, it was really trying to stay out of the way so that there was room for the audience to come in and find things for themselves, you know, depending on who they are, 
where they just came from, you know, all the things that, that change your experience when you're, you know, viewing something collectively. But yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, I remember being at the American Film Institute and they kept saying, you have to develop a style. Style is mm. really important. You know, you need to be a stylist. And I thought that's the f- last thing I would ever want to be, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. You bring up film school and I, I was curious um, about the scene set at Juilliard. Uh, Cause I feel like a lot of people have been talking about that. And I'm, I'm wondering where the inspiration for that came from, if it was, uh, you know, little dabbles from your own experience at um, school or just uh, straight from your head? Um, well, it's funny. You've never, uh, it's, it's, you're the first person that's ever uh, drawn that line. Um, and I suppose that's true. Yeah, we had, a, we had a class at the American Film Institute called Narrative Analysis. Um, it was a fairly brutal class. It was run by Deju Magyar, who's a Hungarian filmmaker. And in that class, we made these things called cycle projects. And those cycle projects were um, under um, very particular circumstances. You had to shoot them for four days. You had a few hundred dollars and you had to edit them in four days. And then you had to view them in front of your peers in a classroom such as that and sit on stage while everybody threw tomatoes at you. And you were not allowed to talk back. Um, And it was a, utterly brutal situation and and it would be terrible to have the have the fruit thrown at you it would be even worse if it was praised because then you had a target on your back for the rest of the year um but but it certainly uh there's certainly parallels to that scene but really the impetus for writing it i think um was just the age-old question you know what would your older self tell to your younger self um and this version of 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 these two individuals, one is you know fifty years old, the other one is half half that age, um, and and the younger one is very much like Lydia Tarr was when she was twenty five years old. She was breaking glass ceiling. She was ignoring the canon. She didn't care about you know dead white man music. She was going and getting her you know doctorate degree down you know doing ethnographic field work you know um, with very specific kinds of music with the Shipibo Kanibo people. So yeah. But she couldn't be further from that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, she's also, you know, the scene sort of is triggered by her dismissing the choice of music from the student. That was important for me. So what is that music? Well, that music is very much like what she's describing later to her assistant that she's struggling with. She says it sounds like Charles Ives, like pastiche. Well, Charles Ives is the sort of, you know, parent of, of atonal music very much so. And um, uh, so she so she's trying to do something very similar to what she's criticizing. And the person that she's criticizing is female. She's younger. She's, as she would describe, quite beautiful. Um, and she's also heralded as, as a very particular kind of a modern composer. Um, so I think that's important. You know, why does she go after this student? Um, those are very personal reasons for her. Um, she states them as being sort of large pieces of wisdom, but the truth is, is she has an agenda, you know? Yeah. And one of my favorite things about this film is the theories that uh, are being um, doled out on the internet about it. I was reading one today about the ending being all in her head and in a dream. And, and I'm sure, I'm curious how you take in that kind of engagement? Do you enjoy that people are coming up with their own theories about um, a lot of your storytelling? 
Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> that that's why, that's the only, the film is a dead thing unless people are doing that. You know, my intent is completely irrelevant. You know, uh, the dream is that there's going to be enough room for anyone to come in and, and be the, the, the final filmmaker. I'd love to hear that. I'd love, I'd love to hear when people attack the film for their own reasons. That, that interests me too, you know? I mean, yeah, there's no, there's no wrong, wrong way to read the film. And the, the film is meant to inspire as, as ferocious a, or, or as superfluous, uh, as, you know, speculation as possible or opinions as possible because um, that is the only intent behind it. You know, um, you know, I, I, I very much like this uh, Isaac Dennison uh, quote. I think it's you know, truth is for uh, tailors and shoemakers. I've always found that the the Lord has a penchant for masquerades. You know, mm-hmm. and um, and we are dealing with fiction. You know, this is not a documentary. Yeah. Have you seen any theories that sort of tickle you or that you found surprising? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to share yeah. any of them? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's smart the way you allow everyone to have their own interpretation. Uh, the more you say, the less that happens. I think. Yeah, I wouldn't argue with anyone's interpretation or offer any other. Um, it's it, it's it's great. Everybody, you know, this film has really very little to do with me anymore. Yeah. So you're not going to tell me how Lydia Tarr got her egot, is what you're saying? <laughs> oh man, I just I. <laughs> I, as so many people really, really want, I have a little box with, with, with all of the, the answers to that, but that box is sealed. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe in like 10 years. Yeah, maybe in 10 years. Um, And I'm curious, was there any other film or piece of art or book that sort of really inspired or influenced you as you were writing this? Well, many things, um, for sure. I mean, there's a very, you know, she name drops Antonio Brico in the first interview with Adam Gopnik. And there was a very good documentary. Have you ever seen it from the 1970s about Antonio Brico? No, I haven't seen it. Um, Well, I highly recommend it. Um, it, I think it won the Academy Award for Best Doc. Um, I don't remember which year it was, but that was a giant inspiration, um, for sure. You know? um, What was it about that documentary? Well... She, by all accounts, um, she was an incredible conductor. Mm-hmm. And she conducted for, as a guest conductor for uh, the Berlin Philharmonic and, and the Metropolitan. And she became so wildly popular because it was such a novel thing to have a female conductor that I believe, and I may have this wrong, but I believe she was sort of um, given a, a principal conductor post for an all-female orchestra that would perform at Carnegie Hall, and I think one of those patrons was Eleanor Roosevelt. So there was a whole there was a whole society of sort of um, supporters of, of very wealthy people and their and their wives, uh, sort of uptown people that that backed her. But there was a certain point where she said, "I don't. This is silly, you know. I I don't think of myself as a female conductor, and I don't." need to have female players. I just want the best players. And she wanted to to balance the orchestra, you know, in terms of that being a criteria as opposed to single gender. Um, mm. And of course, once the novelty of it being all women, once that went out the window, and there's a little touching of that in the scene between um, Lydia Tarr and, and her 
you know, her patron, this sort of amateur conductor come, you know, mm-hmm. financial guru, uh, Elliot Kaplan, played by Mark Strong, which she says she wants to bust up her fellowship as being single gender, you know. Um, that's sort of what happened to Antonio Brico. And then she lost her post, you know, and she didn't, wasn't able to conduct for most of the rest of her life. And she's very stoic in the documentary, but at the end of it, there's one moment where she kind of lets her guard down to, a bit. And um, they say... What's it been like not to to conduct all this time? And that kind of resonated with me, maybe because I haven't made a film in so long, you know? Um, Because her answer was, I'm a musician, but I don't have a piano, and I don't have a horn, and I don't have a drum, and I don't have a, a, you know, string instrument. I have human beings, and without them, I'm silenced. Hmm. And, and, it's the only time where you just feel you could see the pain in her face. You know, she needed other people to be a musician. Um, yeah, well, I definitely will have to check out this documentary and I assume lots of our listeners will after hearing about it. Um, and we're almost out of time, but I am curious, you know, you mentioned how Lydia Tarr was, this character was with you for so long. And now that the film is out and you're, you're done essentially with this, are, are you able to sort of move on from that once once you've been able to tell the story like this or do you does it kind of stick with you after well i never go back and look at films that i've been involved with um but i I think this will be a very hard thing to get off of me um just because it came right out of the pandemic and and it happened very quickly so i i really haven't had a break since i finished the film you know we finished the film right before venice so i'm looking forward to going home at some point out into the pasture and you know stripping off my clothes that I made this film in and and making a bonfire hopefully that will help um it's hard to let films go um it's a real nuisance especially when you talk about them so much you know (laughs) 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 that does it for today's episode we'll be back later this week with our regular roundtable conversation. You can find us on Twitter in the meantime at HWD. You can email us, uh, please, with your questions for our mailbag episode coming up before the holidays at littlegoldmen at vf.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich and Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.